I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We've been talking about the letters, the seven letters to the churches of Asia. Jesus has appeared to John as the conqueror and spoken specific instruction to each of seven churches. Literally, the letters are to the pastors, it says to the angel, but we know that that means a pastor. Some people look at the word angel and they automatically assume spirit being, but it wouldn't make sense for God to have to go through John to talk to an angel. So when he talks to the word angel means messenger, so it's talking to the pastors. And uh, these seven letters contain uh, common information. There are certain elements that, uh, that are a part of each of the seven letters, and there are certain things that are unique to each one of the churches. I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and read down through verse 17. We won't cover all those scriptures this morning, but... Uh, Uh, We'll cover the uh, 12th and 13th verses. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So thou also, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in that stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now let's talk a little bit about Pergamon. The the names Pergamum and Pergamus are, are interchangeable. You can say it either way. One's Romans, one's uh, Greek. The city of Pergamus is, um, uh, well, we don't know exactly when it started, but we know when it became what John is referencing here in the book of Revelation. In, in uh, 330 B.C., Alexander the Great won his first major battle and began his conquest of the world. And so a short time later, short meaning within the next couple of decades, um, the Greek culture and the Greek rule spread into to Asia, what we know of as Asia or Asia Minor. Most of it is uh, modern-day Turkey. And, um, and there was just something about the Greek culture that fit with the people of Pergamos because shortly after the, uh, the Greeks began to rule in that territory, they set about, the people set about a very ambitious project to make Pergamos the Athens of Asia. And so they began copying the Greek uh, or Hellenistic sculptures, architecture, layouts, and just the whole thing. They tried to make it their own uh, city of Athens there in, uh, in, there in Asia. And as such, it became what many people wrote to be the most beautiful city in the world. Now, you had to be careful. As a, if you were a historian or an author writing in the present time, your present time, you had to be careful what you said about certain places because, for example, if you wrote in the, uh, in the days of the Roman Empire, Rome was the most beautiful city no matter what you thought. If you wrote in the Greek times, then Athens was the most beautiful city no matter what you thought. So you had to kind of be careful what you said and when you said it and the way you said things. But there were uh, there was certain information, certain historical documents that indicate that um, that Pergamos was just something very, very unique. They one of the first cities that had building codes, and part of their building codes and the way that it came about was they um, uh, had many temples to pagan gods. As a matter of fact, there's a list of them here. I had to bring it uh, in my notes so I didn't miss any of them. The most splendid sanctuaries in the city were those de- dedicated to Asclepius, Athena, Demeter, Dionysus, Hera, and Zeus. Now, those were just the ones that had marble structures. There were hundreds of other small sanctuaries in small places. But these 
temples to these people that uh, that I'm, these gods that I just mentioned were all built in white marble. Now, Pergamos was a um, a rival city to Ephesus. They were about the same size. Ephesus is probably a little bigger, but they were similar in size, and they were uh, rivals in just about everything that there was. Um, the only difference, really, the biggest difference between Ephesus and Pergamos was that Ephesus was a seaport. It was right on the ocean, and whereas uh, Pergamum was uh, overlooking the Aegean Sea, it was some miles inland, but it overlooked the sea. The, um, the Roman governor was called the proconsul, and he had to live in Ephesus because Ephesus was known as the place to be. But he ruled the, the provincial headquarters or the, the capital city, literally, as far as the government and the operation was concerned, was Pergamum. And so what he would do is the, the proconsul and all these dignitaries uh, that would start in Ephesus and then they would travel the 90 miles, whatever it was, to, uh, to Pergamum. So that road between Ephesus and Pergamum, it went through Smyrna. You went 30 miles north to Smyrna, spent overnight there usually, and then went 60 miles inland to, uh, to where Pergamum was. That was one of the safest roads known in the world because of all the Roman dignitaries and so forth that went back and forth between these two towns. So both cities claimed the proconsul as their own. He lived in Ephesus, but he worked in Pergamum. And so he was dividing his time back and forth, and it was just simply because the, the two cities had such a great rivalry going. Ephesus was considered to be the, the, um, the cosmopolitan center of the world, or one of them, that part of the world at least. And, uh, and Pergamum was right on his heels. Now, Athens was known for, and still is, uh, during that period of time the, when the Greeks ruled the world, Alexander the Great and so forth, they were known for their sculptures and architecture and so forth. But Pergamum outdid them as far as sculptures were concerned. It became, as a matter of fact, there was a school of sculpture that began developing in Pergamum. And for centuries later, Pergamum was the standard of excellence as far as the sculptures and, and reliefs and friezes and all these kind of things that, that uh, involve sculpturing and, and so forth. It was known as the Athens of the world, or the Athens of Asia. And it outstripped Athens in many, many ways. Now, the significance to the, the building codes and the marble temples and so forth is that in the distance, many, many miles away, you could see these white marble buildings and the sun shining off of them that represented the, the pagan temples of Pergamum. Now, there were some other things that were interesting about it. As a matter of fact, the... Uh, uh, did you notice that Jesus talks about that Pergamum is where Satan's seed is? There's a lot of discrepancy and, and conjecture about just exactly what Jesus meant by that. But let me give you a little bit of information about the um, the pagan worship in uh, in Pergamum. Let me suffice it to say, and I think you'll agree with me after I explain a little bit, nobody rivaled them as far as pagan worship was concerned. Nobody. Now, that doesn't mean that they were worshiping more than other people were worshiping, but they were the, the, they were the pagan god center, basically. And you'll understand what I mean. Pergamum was uh, operating in pagan worship some 300 years before the church ever established, uh, 350 years perhaps before the church was ever established. Uh, we know the church at Pergamum started during the time that Paul was in Ephesus, 52 to 55 A.D., who started it, we don't know. Could have been Paul himself, but more likely it was probably somebody that was sent from Ephesus while, during those three years Paul was there and started the church. But like, again, we don't know for sure. But, uh, but we are pretty certain about what, time, uh, what the time period for the church beginning was. Let me, uh, let me share with you a little bit about some of the, the major gods that they had. One of the gods that, uh, that they worshipped was Dionysus, or Dionysus, however you say it. Now, Dionysus was the god of wine, and he was the god of revelry. He was also the provider of, of all things that are good, supposedly. And the worship of uh, Dionysus was such that people would drink this wine that was drug-induced, laced with hallucinogenics and so forth. And, uh, and uh, the whole purpose of the worship was to become so 
intoxicated that you gave yourself over to be possessed by the spirit of Dionysus. It was spirit possession stuff. Now, Dionysus promised eternal life to his followers. And the way that you would worship is you'd go to the, uh, to the temple and you'd drink this drug-induced wine to the point where you couldn't see straight and your, your mental capabilities were affected and so forth. And then they'd offer a sacrifice. And usually it would be the slaughter of a bull or something. And uh, it, it was tough to be a bull in the days of the, of the Greek empire. Because everybody's offering bulls. So anyway, it was, uh, it was usually a bull that was offered. But whatever the animal was offered, the blood was sprinkled around the room and upon the people and so forth. And then everybody would gorge themselves on the raw meat. Yeah. Going to church was an experience back then, I guess. But as I said, it, he promised eternal life and pleasure in this world. Now, the thing I want you to get, folks, is the counterfeit before Jesus, 350 years before Jesus, or 300 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. The devil knew what God's benefits and his character and his nature is. And the devil always tries to counterfeit things. One of the the counterfeits in this case, where the case of Dionysus is concerned, is the promise of eternal life and well-being in this life. The devil knew that that's part of God's package. He knew that's part of what man lost. Now, the, um, the bloodletting, and you can well imagine that people in their drug-induced, spirit-controlled conditions would do all kinds of goofy things, and it got out of hand. So much so that the Romans, many years later, that the Romans outlawed the worship of Dionysus. Now, the Romans were not ones to outlaw much of anything when it came to pagan worship. But it got so extreme that they outlawed it. Pergamum was the only place that they couldn't, couldn't rid the, the, uh, the worship of Dionysus. It was so deeply ingrained into the people. The, the Roman god's name for Dionysus is Bacchus. You may have heard that. It was so deeply ingrained in the people that they couldn't get the people to stop it no matter what. They knew that they were going to have a revolt if they pushed it. So they wound up leaving it alone in, in Pergamum. But it was the only place where you could worship Dionysus. Now, the net effect of that is people would come from everywhere everywhere to worship in Pergamon. If they couldn't worship in the city where they were, then they'd make these pilgrimage trips to Pergamon so that they could continue to worship this goofball Dionysus because it was the only place it was legal. Another god that they worshipped was Asclepius. Excuse me. I'm not too good on these names. But he was the god of healing. Now, his temple was a couple of miles outside of town. It wasn't sitting on the hillside like most of the others. But his was a a complex of buildings that was uh, known as a healing center. And people would come from all over the world to offer sacrifice at the temple of Asclepius to be healed of their diseases. Now, here's how that worked. Again, it's counterfeit, but here's how that worked. You would go to the temple of Asclepius or the Asclepion, as it was called, and the priest would interview you, find out what was wrong with you. If you had a critical disease, if you were near death, they wouldn't take you. If there was anything that they considered to be too, too much wrong with you, they wouldn't take you. But if, if you didn't have enough wrong with you to where they thought it was okay, then they would, they would let you in. Now, the first thing you had to do is you had to buy this replica of whatever body part you need to be healed of if you had a problem with your ear you had to buy this golden ear you had a problem with your leg you had to buy a golden leg and so forth and it was a money-making scheme obviously to um to make money for the priests of the temple and so you'd have to offer this uh offer it up as a sacrifice to the to asclepius for the healing of your body now asclepius was a snake god so what you'd do is you'd start off, the, there were several different treatments or stages to the treatment of, uh, of the healing of your disease and so forth, the petitioning of the snake god for your healing. But again, it's counterfeit. Satan knows that healing is a part of the package of eternal life and salvation. So they'd send you through, this priest would send you through this tunnel. There's an underground tunnel. 
that had troughs of running water down each side. And so it's a, a stone tunnel. And so the, the only sound or the major sound that you'd hear was the running water. It was a very soothing type thing. There would be lamps around that would be burning opium as incense. So you wouldn't get but, you know, 10 or 20 feet into the tunnel and all of a sudden you're loopy. The opium's already making you feel better. And there were holes in this tunnel wall where the priest would be on the other side of the tunnel walls whispering things like, you're healed. You feel great. There's nothing wrong with you. So by the time, yeah, I am serious. So by the time you get through the tunnel, you're not only doped up on, on opium, you've been hearing in this very tranquil setting, you've been hearing how well you are. You're coming through and the priest say, how you feeling? So, I feel great. <laughs> then they send you to the treatment rooms. I know this sounds stupid, but folks, people spent fortunes on this kind of stuff. They'd send you to the treatment rooms. And in this treatment room, you continue your opium incense thing. And... Um, uh, and they would do whatever they're going to do, incantations or enchantments or whatever they do. And then they'd give you time to rest, kind of like a day spa. And uh, I hear, I really don't know, but my wife goes to the day spa and said, oh, I took a two-hour nap, and I'm thinking, you paid somebody to go sleep in their room. <laughs> anyway. Actually, she didn't pay. I gave it to her for a birthday present. I'm thinking, I'm paying so she's going to sleep in somebody's room. Anyway, they go to these treatment rooms. Makes no sense at all, does it? The guys are saying, I know exactly what you mean. So they go to these treatment rooms and remember that um, uh, Asclepios was was the snake god. And everything was revolved around the, the presence of snakes. If the snake appears to you... If the snake appears to you in your dreams, your opium-induced dreams, after talking to you for hours and hours about snakes, if he appears to you in your opium-induced dreams, then that's Asclepius coming to you to bring your healing. Now, when people would go to these treatment rooms and after they'd fall asleep, the, the, uh, uh, the priest would release snakes into the room. So if the snake crawls over you, you wake up and there's a snake crawling over your, your leg or whatever it is where you're sleeping on the floor, a little mat on the floor, you're there in the presence of the snakes. You're still in your opium-induced stupor. And so the idea was Asclepius has come to you and brought your healing. So after event, after event, after event, they would finally get to the place where they would say, okay, well, you're healed now. That's it. You're healed. Some of it, you know, might be explained away. Psychosomatic type stuff could be explained away. Other things they'd say... Well, it's just, it's already happened. It's just a matter of time. Go home and you'll see the results type stuff. Counterfeit. After the the, uh, treatment was completed, then what you did is you took this white marble stone and you wrote the name, your name, and what you were healed of on this stone. And it was kept there at the Asclepion as a testimony for all the things that the god Asclepius has done for the people. Now, do you remember one of the last things that we wrote that was written here to the letter to Pergamus? If you overcome, I'll write your name on a white stone. That's a reference to the Asclepian, the, the practice of Asclepian. In other words, Jesus is saying over and over again, I'm the one, I'm the real deal. The third one that I want to point out is Demeter. The, the worship of Demeter. Now, Demeter was kind of a all-purpose god. He would provide food for your table. Again, you've got, uh, well, let me, let me finish my thought, and then I'll go back to that. He'd provide food for your table and provide forgiveness of sins. So think about the counterfeits that the pagan gods were supposed to offer. Eternal life, provision, healing, and forgiveness of sins. Those are the main things that the pagan gods... In Pergamum, and each one of these had their own temple, major places. Each uh, one of those things is supposed to be provided in some means or manner by the worship of these pagan gods. Now, Demeter was set up so that they slaughtered bulls too, but they you had an opportunity to go under the altar. 
there was a pit type thing that had a grate on top of it and they would slaughter the bull while people were in the pit. So you were literally being washed in the blood of the bull for the forgiveness of sins. Can you see the counterfeit? Over and over and over again, folks, the devil counterfeits. And this is before, listen, these things were going on hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to the earth. The devil knew God's plan. He knew what it would take, which makes it all the more miraculous that the devil continued in his attempt to destroy Jesus. The Bible says, had he known what the end result of God's plan of redemption would have been, would be, he wouldn't have crucified Jesus. The, the question I have is how stupid does the devil have to be to know this stuff ahead of time? Know that it's the shedding of blood. Knowing that it's, all these things will be provided through the redemptive work of God sending his son. Oh, by the way, Demeter, I should tell you about Demeter. I think it was Demeter. It was either Demeter or Dionysus. I'm not sure which one. I get some of these gods confused. But one of them was the offspring of Zeus and a, and a, a human being. Again, a counterfeit of the virgin birth. But the devil knew over and over again the things that would, the elements that would be a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. And still, he sent Jesus to the cross. Now, I hate to even put it in these terms, but if I was the devil and I understood that this was what it would take, I'd make sure nobody was crucified. I'd stop the plan of God by making sure that nobody was ever crucified from the point in time that I found it out. But not the devil. That's the idiot that he, that's tempting you to obey him. Now, one other thing. Let me go back to verse 12. I think it's verse 12. And to the angel in Pergamos, angel of the church in Pergamos, write. These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. Remember I told you that Pergamos and Ephesus were rival cities. And the proconsul lived in Ephesus, but he worked in Pergamum. Well, Pergamum, uh, the proconsul was was the uh, the uh, officially uh, or effectively he was the uh, Roman governor of the of the province. Now, the proconsul was given what was called, and it was especially especially um, prevalent in Pergamum. Pergamum was one of the greatest places of persecution that we have in record on history, with the possible exception of Rome itself. And that is, the proconsul had what was called the right of the sword. Now, the right of the sword was literally an execution order from Caesar that the proconsul was enabled to kill anybody and everybody that resists the emperor's instructions. When one of the first things Jesus says, literally the first thing that Jesus says, is, I'm the one that's got the sword. You may be living under the threat of execution by the proconsul, by the Roman government, but I'm the one that's got the sword. And notice it's a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. I'll point this out a little bit next time, but the word sharp is really not the word sharp. The word sharp means a medicinal agent to either anesthetize or to use as an antiseptic. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's got the sword, and it's a surgical knife. It's like a scalpel. Now, the scalpel he's going to use is on the people with the false doctrine. You may notice, and we'll cover this in much greater detail next Sunday morning, but notice in verse 16 he said, Repent or else I'll, fight, I'll come into thee quickly, and we'll fight against them. Notice he's not saying he's going to fight against the church. He's going to fight against the wrong doctrines in the church. He's going to provide, perform a surgery to remove the people that are necessary to remove. Now, remember the church at Smyrna was also a church under great persecution. The church at Smyrna had nothing that Jesus said was against them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I think we brought this out, it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have any problems, they didn't have anything to fix. But they were under such great persecution that Jesus just didn't deal with anything else. He just encouraged them to hold out, hold fast. But the church at Pergamum was under even greater persecution. And he told them, you better fix this or else I'm going to do something about it. And that's the wrong doctrine. We'll talk about the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans 
next time. But there was another issue that uh, that bears pointing out uh, to understand the, the time that they were living in and what Jesus is saying. And that is um, the proconsul had the right of the sword. So everybody was under great persecution. Everybody was under great threat of bodily harm, even death. Domitian was the emperor, the Caesar, at the time that John received the revelation. He's the one that sent John to the Isle of Patmos. Domitian was the first one to, pro- to uh, proclaim himself the perpetual censor. Now, that had the effect of uh, President Obama's executive orders. It's not legal, but he's in charge, so he does it anyway. So what it meant for, uh, what it meant for Domitian, perpetual censor literally means that he can execute judgment without any legal proceeding whatsoever, without any, uh, any other action other than his word against anybody that resists his edicts or orders. Now, one of the things that had happened before the present proconsul, the one that is in place when John was there, in the earlier time, we don't know exactly the time, time period, but it was uh, while Domitian was, uh, was Caesar, is that one of the proconsuls was ex- uh, executed this proconsul, the proconsul of uh, Asia, was executed because it was supposed Domitian just had a suspicion that he was undermining his efforts to exercise control and, and operate as Caesar. So as a result, proconsuls all over the provinces were especially hard on Christians and anybody that might be supposed or suspected to be operating contrary to the to the way Caesar wanted things to go, whatever that might be. And that could change from week to week. But there was no tolerance whatsoever on the part of the proconsuls or the governors because they didn't want to find this, themselves in the same fate or the same situation as the previous proconsul. Now, back to... Uh, now the, here's why that has relevance. Back to the, um, uh, the statement that Jesus made about where Satan's seat is. The word seat can either mean throne. It's literally the Greek word thronus. And it can either mean a throne, meaning a seat of power, or a place for the head of the household to sit. You men usually have a favorite chair or a special chair or something like that that you have in your family room or or TV room or whatever it is. That's what this word means. It means the head of the household, the one that's in power, the one that's in charge. And so he's saying that Pergamon had a special place as far as Satan's power is concerned, a special place as far as Satan's dwelling is concerned. Now, one of the things that's interesting or significant about um, Pergamum is that it is the first city to have instituted Caesar worship. In 29 B.C., Caesar Augustus had a temple built for himself in Pergamum. Now, he didn't do it himself. The Pergamum... The people of Pergamos, however you say that, whatever you call them, built a temple to Caesar Augustus. And they started offering worship and incense and sacrifice and so forth to that. When Caesar Augustus found out about it, he was flattered and he said, hey, this is a cool thing. Before me, the only times anybody's been proclaimed to God, the only times Caesars have been proclaimed gods is after their death. But I'm still alive and they're doing this. This is pretty cool. Well, over the next number of years... There were two other, after the Romans came into power, I mean, there were two other times where, the, where Pergamum received permission to build temples to other Caesars. So they were literally the city that instituted and was most heavily involved in the imperial cult of Caesar worship. And that's where you had to proclaim Caesar as Lord. So that could have something to do with where Satan's, where Satan's seat is. On top of all of these things, one of the the wonders of the world was that the city of Pergamum had what was called the Altar of Zeus. And that's what they were really famous for and really well known for. And that was uh, a huge platform that overlooked the city, overlooked the whole valley, really. It was a huge platform. The, The steps of the platform were about from this pole right here, this white pole right here on this edge of the platform to that one. That's just the steps going up. 
And it was a huge place where there was a temple, I mean, where there was a colonnade, double colonnade all the way around. And um, uh, there was continual fire. There was a perpetual fire that could never go out. So the city of Pergamum could be seen in the distance for several things. One is the marble temples that would gleam in the sun. But then also the fire, the smoke of the fire that would be ascending into heaven 24-7. This combination of things, any one of these things could be a reference to where Satan's seat is. Or the combination of all of them could be a, a reference to it. But back to what Jesus said. To the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I'm the one with the right of the sword. He's talking about eternal judgment. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. In other words, he's saying, I know firsthand from inspection the works of you. And I know where your home is. Now, I want you to notice something about what we read. There's no hint of escapism in any of this stuff. The message to the church at Pergamum is not get out of town. Go to a better place. How many times do we run into people, and we maybe fantasize about it for ourselves, that when we run into trouble, we escape it some way or another by just picking up our stuff and going somewhere else? When has God ever told us to do that? I've had so many people come to me and say, Pastor Mike, pray for me that I'll get another job. Okay, why? Well, because I'm the only Christian on that job. Well, you're in the right place then, aren't you? Well, no, I want to go somewhere where it's easy. Everybody wants to go where it's easy. Has anybody ever found that easy place? I'm not planning to go, but I'd sure like to have it for mental, you know, for reference sake later on. I need to. There is no easy place. There's no perfect place. There's no perfect situation. Jesus said to the church, I know the persecution you're under. I know where you're dwelling. I know you're operating as Christians and as believers right in the middle of Satan's throne. You're in his throne room. And I understand that. Notice what he commended them for. He said, and now hold us fast, my faith. The word hold fast means that strength, powerful grip. Strong, powerful grip. He said, you wouldn't turn loose of my name. Now notice what else. He said, and hast not denied my faith. The Greek, as we pointed out where it says my faith and my name and stuff like that, and even thy works, I know thy works. It literally means I know the works of you. And the emphasis is on you. The emphasis is on Jesus' recognition and firsthand observation of your works. He knows where you dwell. You don't dwell in the same place other people do. That was certainly true of these guys as far as the work of the devil and and pagan worship and so forth. He said, and you hold fast my name and has not denied my faith even. Notice that, even. Even when an event takes place, that it would be understandable perhaps for people to turn loose. You have not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. A couple things I want you to see. Notice he says, has not denied my faith. In the Greek language, this is a lot stronger than it comes out in the English. In other words, Jesus is saying that the faith of the gospel is his. You have not denied the faith of the gospel that means something and belongs to me. Now, folks, the thing that he, that he corrects them about is wrong doctrine. The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What he's saying is simply this. Not only is the church under, under the pressure from the outside, of the Roman government and the persecution that's coming from the outside, the church is being attempted by the devil to be destroyed from inside. He tells them to hold fast against the outside persecution, but you better do something about the inside problem or else I'll come perform surgery myself. The whole point is very simply this. The devil has always tried to modify or alter the gospel. 
Well, the Bible talks about contending for the faith. Boy, these guys, they understood what that meant. That meant standing against anybody that tries to take anything away from the gospel or modify it in any way whatsoever. Most of the time nowadays, the ones that use that term are the ones that are trying to modify the gospel themselves. Most of the people that are using the term contend for the faith are the ones that are trying to deny the the truth of healing. And faith, receiving by faith, the operation of faith, the blessings of God and so forth. We have the same attack against us that they had against them. It may not be the same pressure from the outside, but there's certainly the same pressure from the inside. And that is the temptation to modify or alter the gospel. Don't let anybody take away the truth of the gospel. Jesus said it's his. I wish I could emphasize that enough. He says it's his faith. He says it's his. Now he references an event. The event was the death of a person named Antipas. Interestingly enough, the name Antipas means against everything. And that would certainly be the case and certainly was the case where this guy was concerned. He was against against everything that the pagan worshippers stood for. Everything. Now there's a letter, uh, historical document, between a later proconsul and a later Caesar. The persecution didn't end at this time. It continued on for many, many years. But there's a, a letter that we have record of, historical document, between a proconsul named Pliny, P-L-I-N-I-N-Y, Pliny, Pliny, I don't know, whatever. And Trajan, the, uh, the later Caesar. And the question is, from the proconsul, the Roman governor, how do I deal with these Christians? Here's what I'm doing. Is this okay with you? Type thing. And he, go, he outlines what kind of test the Christians are put to. And the first thing that he demands of them when they're brought before him, having been accused of, in by that time, nothing more than just being a Christian. That was enough to be brought before the, the governmental powers. He said, the first thing that I do is I demand that they deny Christ. I demand that they claim Caesar as Lord and then offer sacrifice or incense, literally, to Caesar. If they won't do that, of course, I kill them. But is that okay? If they will do that, if they will deny, I let them go. Is that okay? And Trajan, the emperor, writes back to him saying, yeah, that's a good plan. If you have any doubts whatsoever, just kill them anyway. That was at a time where the persecution wasn't as great as John is writing to. As referenced in in Revelation. That's when the persecution let up. That's what the situation was that these people were living under. And Jesus references, and the word even is a very stress, strenuous, I don't know how how to really say what I'm trying to get across. It denotes something that Jesus is saying, even when this happened. You didn't deny my name, you held fast to my name, you didn't deny my faith. In other words, it's almost the implication that it would be understandable if some of you turned loose or turned back at this point, but you didn't. So what does he reference? He references Antipas and his martyrdom. Now, we've got some historical record about that, and I, I want to leave us time to receive communion this morning, so I'll, I'll close with this. Um, we don't know who Antipas was. We don't know who the angel of the church at, at uh, Pergamos was. There are two people that are named early on, one by Jesus himself, Antipas. He could have been the, um, uh, the pastor of the church, but he wouldn't have been at this time because he's already been killed. He could have been the first pastor of the church at uh, Pergamum. There's another guy by the name of Gaius. We don't know too much about him, but he's listed in the historical records as the earliest pastor. So it could be that Gaius is the pastor of the church at this time. But again, we don't know. And even if he was, we don't know anything about him, so it wouldn't help us. But here's what we do know. We know that Domitian was the Caesar that put John on the Isle of Patmos and was still there for several years after. It certainly was the Caesar at the time that this was written. 
the one overseeing, if you will, the persecution that uh, Jesus references, probably overseeing the, uh, well, according to the historical record, was the Caesar in power when uh, Antipas was martyred. And Antipas was such a guy, he was referenced as a church leader, not a pastor, just a church leader, the leader of Christians. Now, whether that's a general term, a casual term, or a specific term, we don't know. But this guy was so known for his righteous nature and his righteous lifestyle that it was said that the, that the, the demon spirits of these gods, these false gods, couldn't operate when he was around. And so people started complaining. People started complaining that it's not the same. This Antipas guy is messing everything up. Demons started appearing to their priests in dreams saying Antipas is keeping us from accepting your sacrifices. And if you don't do something about him, then we're not going to be able to watch over the city any longer. That's the kind of testimony that this guy had. So the people rose up against him, an angry crowd. I'm going to read from uh, uh, a portion. I won't read the whole thing. It's too long. But I want to read from a portion of the, uh, the historical record that we have of Antipas and his martyrdom. An angry crowd therefore attacked Antipas and seized him and dragged him to a place where sacrifices were customarily held. The governor, that would be the proconsul, spoke to him thus. He said, Are you the Antipas who both disobeys the decrees of our emperors and urges others to disobey? And are you the one disrupting our traditional sacrifices so much that you let none of the gods enjoy the fat or the smoke. As a result, all the gods have left and we are threatened by the risk that they may not wish to watch over the city any longer. How'd you like that said about you? Let it be enough that you have been free to devote yourself to the Christian superstition up to this day. Now come to your senses and obey our laws so that the gods who protect this lovely city can care for and watch over us. But if you refuse, and in the enthusiasm for your faction you ignore the religion of the gods, you shall have inflicted upon you, according to the rule of Roman laws, the torments you deserve. Antipas answered, Know just this. I am a Christian, and I flatly refuse to obey the emperor's evil decree, which is cut off from all reason. And because your questions need answering, I will do so willingly. Certainly... If the gods whom you adore and whom you claim are the masters of the whole world say that they are being driven off by a mortal man in such a way that although they ought to be your protectors and deliverers beg for your help, you can easily come to see your mistake. I like this guy. I don't even know him, but I like this guy. Indeed, how will those who cannot avenge themselves... And admit they are being beaten by one man, be able to save an entire nation or even any city that is put in some danger. You should now, at least, thinking this over, abandon your ruinous error and believe in Christ who came down from heaven to save the human race. Yes, the Christ who will come at the end of time is the judge of all men and will give what is fitting in return for each of their deeds, either rewards or torments. The governor answered, You want to submit to new laws and practices invented by you yourselves while the religion of the gods is despised. The religion that we have accepted from the very beginning passed on to us in our traditions by our ancestors from which our inheritance has also come. Indeed, this is why we cleave to to their footsteps and do not consider it safe to depart from them because what is ancient stands superior to what is young. And what has been established by time's long passage is more praiseworthy than what is new. Therefore, you should change your opinion as well and not follow that man in his scheme of life. Talking about Jesus. Not follow that man in his scheme of life who has just recently been recognized and confused the lives of mortals with some conjurations, especially since he was fixed upon a cross under Governor Pontius Pilate. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The crucifixion of Jesus was an accepted historical fact for the early church. It's not some fairy tale like the devil would have you believe. It was a historical event, in fact. So obey the emperor's decrees 
that you may pass your life among us without danger. In fact, we will be favorable and loving to you in all things as sons, seeing that your age demands that we love you as a father. To this Antipas said, Although you are piling up countless arguments upon my ears, I will nevertheless not be so foolish and unwise when I have already arrived in an extreme old age and cannot be far from death as to change my belief and, for the sake of a wretched and shameful life, abandon a resolute declaration of my faith. So do not besiege my mind, which has occupied itself with continual reading of divine things. None of He goes on. None of your gods existed from the beginning, and nothing useful has ever been obtained for you by them. Rather, you have abandoned yourselves to foul and repulsive men who provide examples of a perverse manner of life and point out a supply of foul pleasures. But if we should follow whatsoever is most ancient, why do you not also emulate Cain, the inventor of fratricide? Why do you not set for yourselves as models those who tried to climb to heaven? Talking about the Tower of Babel. Or who were not ashamed to lie with their own sisters? Talking about the the race before the flood. For that, the flood wiped out their race because they were heedless of the right and decent path of life. So likewise, if you want to emulate your gods and their disgraces on account of their age, you will be devoured not by water again, but by eternal fire and the worm that never sleeps if you do not come to your senses. Some evil men seized the holy man as he said these and many other things and dragged him to the temple of Diana where there was a statue of a bronze cow. This they had heated up with a fire that was lit underneath it a while before and into it they threw the blessed martyr. Now, let me explain something to you about this. This uh, uh, cow was a means of sacrifice to the gods and um, not just Diana. It was at the temple of Diana, but the temple of Diana was was kind of a shared location at the Acropolis uh, where there were other gods that could be worshipped with the same statue type thing. And this bronze cow or bull had in it uh, or was constructed in such a way that had a door on the side and this door could be open and stuff could be thrown in there people included it's big enough for for somebody to be thrown in and it could be heated up from the bottom it was over a fire over a a pit type thing and it could be heated up from the bottom and it was a, a means of torture that they used for antipas as well as some others now the way that this thing was constructed the the bull had horns on the head and the horns were hollow so that the screams of the people that were being killed in this by being roasted alive would sound like the bellowing of a bull. But in that situation, Antipas was bound and thrown into the, the belly of this bronze statue. It says, but when he had made the sign of the cross, he prayed. Now, this is after he had been in there and roasting for a long time. They didn't hear a sound from him, no cries, no screams, nothing for a long time. He just made the sign of the cross and was thrown in. And then after some period of time, which should have taken his life or when everybody expected that he would be close to death anyway, he prayed this. In other words, this is the sound that they heard coming from the hollow horns that were reserved for his screams. He prayed, oh, God, who has opened up for us the mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was locked away in secret warehouses of treasures through whom thou hast also disclosed the secrets of thy wisdom. I give thanks to thee for all thy benefits. Would you thank God while you were burning in a bull? Folks, that's the measure of the character and the stature of these first century Christians. Who preservest those of us who hope in thee and has made me worthy of this hour that I may be added to the number of those who endured martyrdom for thy holy name. Take up my spirit as it departs today from this life and grant that it may find favor before thee and thine only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And also that those who are to be partakers of thy benevolence may praise thy holy name together in Christ through whom honor is offered to thee forever. Amen. When this prayer was finished, He gave up his spirit as though taken by a heavy sleep and wreathed with the glorious crown of martyrdom was carried up into heaven.
Things like that should make us ashamed of the things that we're hesitant to proclaim our faith in Jesus about. This was in a place where there was no greater historical record of, of pagan worship. I mean, pagan worship was complete in Pergamum. Persecution was the most extreme there of any place that we know of, except certain times, like I said, maybe in Rome. But historically, and for a longer period of time, it was greater in Pergamum than anywhere else. And that was the measure of these Christians. Now, folks, you need to understand something. There were a lot of Christians that turned back and denied Jesus when they were facing death. Historical records show that. And of those, it tells us that a number of them knew exactly what they were doing and never attended the church or tried to join themselves back to the Christian community ever again. But there were others to their weakness that denied Jesus and were accepted back into the church over a period of time after having proven their love for God. I don't have a martyr complex. I've said this before, but I want to point this out, especially in light of some of these things that we're reading. I don't have a martyr complex, but I do know this. I know the days of comfortable Christianity are coming to an end. The time for Christians to be concerned about their little margarita parties or wine tasting or whatever else, those days are coming to an end. It wouldn't be right for our faith in Jesus not to cost us something in this country. And hopefully you can see, I know some of you still have your hope in the election and things are going to change and so forth, but after the election and it doesn't work out the way you think that it will, I hope that then you'll turn back and realize that the only answer is in Jesus. And the only answer is in our continued and increased commitment to the things of God. What's it going to cost us? I don't know. How far is it going to go? I don't know. But I know the world is becoming tolerant to Islam. The greatest threat to Christianity on the, on the face of our present world. I know it's becoming fashionable to jump on the bandwagon of not being able to say anything against Islam, but you can say anything you want to against Christianity. Where's that going to go? I don't know. Well, aren't you concerned about it, Pastor Mike? Yeah, for you. I'm not at all concerned about it for me. But I'm very concerned about the American church. I'm very concerned because of the lack of commitment I see as a whole. What are they going to do when the pressure gets turned up? What are they going to do when the fire gets hot? I'm not worried about it for me. I've made that decision. I hope you have too. But looking at the lifestyle of so much of the church, I don't see any way they could have made that decision. I like the fact that the Antipas... It's recorded of him that he lived such a holy life that the devil couldn't operate around him. It's kind of like the, the guy in Ephesus that was possessed of the devil when the seven sons of Siva tried to cast him out. They said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out of him. He said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Sounds like the devil is saying, Jesus I know and Paul I know and Antipas I know. Maybe that should be our goal, to be known by the devil. We're going to receive communion now, folks. These elements represent the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't get over... And again, the, the English is really doesn't bring it out very well. Let me read it again, make sure I get it right. 
where he talks about Antipas, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. He's writing to the whole church. He's saying, I know that in the midst of persecution, extreme persecution, you've got a strong grip on my name. And you will not deny the faith that is of me. Even in those days where in Antipas was my faithful martyr. My faithful martyr, that's another phrase. It means the faithful witness, the faithful witness, the trustworthy one, mine. Now that's something we all should aspire to. The question is, does the body and the blood of Jesus that these elements represent mean to you and me what it should? Have we modified the gospel? Have we let wrong doctrine or the reasonings of men take away healing from the precious work of Jesus? Have we let it take away the power in the name of Jesus for us to exercise and utilize our authority? Are we looking to something else to be our provider? may not be some pagan God, but if we're looking to anything else to be our provider but God and Jesus through Jesus, then we've modified the gospel. The devil hadn't changed his tactics. It's a different time period, different circumstances. But he still operates under the same tactics and the same rules that he always had. Maybe the question is this. What adjustments would we have to make for the body and the blood of Jesus to be worth dying for for us? Hope it never comes to it. Don't really expect that it will. But what would we have to do? What commitments would we have to make To be faithful and trustworthy like Antipas was. Let's consider that. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please?
Has everyone been served? Do we miss anybody? Paul wrote to the church, to a church that was abusing the Lord's Supper, and it was costing them physical difficulty in many cases, or in some cases. Some were dying prematurely because they were not discerning, honoring, and understanding the significance of the body of the Lord being offered for them. He said, For that which I have received of the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for this that represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he took stripes upon himself that by his stripes we are healed. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Thank you, Father, that we receive Jesus as our Savior and also as our healer. We thank you that this represents the healing power of God that's at work in us, the very life of God that restores us to healing and health. Thank you, Father, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us and is quickening our mortal body, permeating every cell of our being with the life and the healing power of God. Thank you, Father, for the healing work of Jesus that's taking place in us now. Let's receive the bread. Thank you, Lord. After the same manner also, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Thank God he's coming. Father, we thank you for this cup that represents the precious blood of Jesus, holy blood, redeeming blood. Thank you, Father, that through this blood we do have a new life, eternal life, abundant life, righteousness and holiness, the ability to stand before you without condemnation, knowing that you've made all things new and right in your sight. Thank you, Father. For your great plan of redemption. And thank you Lord Jesus for your sacrifice. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let me say a prayer over you and then we'll go. Father, we thank you for the worthy sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it was a complete sacrifice. Provides new life, healing and health for our bodies, and provision for us in every area. We pray, Father, that we would walk worthy of you unto all pleasing. Being fruitful unto every good work and abounding in the knowledge of Christ. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for what you've done for us. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.